<laughs> I still don't know who put this yard here. Your yard's on fire. And I'm like, I didn't know. I didn't say it was yard. on fire. I said we were in your yard. We were playing in your yard. Yeah, but then there was like flamingos. I don't know. I got very confused. I was trying to give you good reason to tell me to get off your lawn. Yeah, but I don't consider it my lawn because I wasn't aware that I had one. But you do, and it's your responsibility now. Oh, no, no, (laughs) no. Responsibility is the worst. This is the Design Games Podcast. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. All right, Will, we're here. We have recording equipment. What paths are open to us going forward? Nathan, I see two paths from this position. The first is that we pack all this stuff up, go get a taco. The other option is we talk about affordances in design. We've used this term affordances a couple times in a couple episodes. I think it's worth focusing on about what that means in the game design context. Because in physical product design um, and even like graphic design and information design, this concept exists and is and is useful, but it, the qualities of it are slightly different because of the right. the form, because it's all about the interactivity of the thing with the person. So the classic example is when you walk up to a door, if it has a knob that is an affordance of turning, there's a, a turning action that creates that is not there if there's a flat plate. And then the s- secondary effect of that is... Uh, does the the user, does the person using the door know how to use the door based on the handle? The, yeah, the way the handle looks or right. whatever. Yeah, Or yeah. acts. Acts, yeah. So like if it's a plate or if it's a pull handle, I call it a pull handle, but if it's a plate or it's a handle, depending on how the door is hinged, you still might have to push a pull handle, right? So and which side of the door you're on and whether you know you're on that side of the door. Right. right. And whether it's, you know, the way that it's set into the wall, if you can see the hinges or not see the hinges. And this is all, this is all very, except for nerds like, like me and, and probably other people listening, uh, this is all very unconscious, right? You walk up to a door and you do a thing and then it either works or it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, you go like, oh, that's weird. Right. Right. It's that far side cartoon with the school for the gifted sign over the kid pushing on the door that says pull. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so ha- so door handles are like an example of a physical affordance issue that is kind of continual. Knobs and levers are very obvious. They only kind of work one way. Maybe you have to turn it one way or the other way, depending on how the latch works. But right. it's very easy to try it and do it. And it doesn't interrupt your flow through it. If it's hinged correctly and the handle is matches how the hinges work, then no one notices. If it's the opposite, people go like, this is a stupid door. And we still haven't <laughs> figured this out. We still haven't figured out doors over, you know. Well, they're pretty new. The centuries of, of their existence in the modern landscape. So in game design, it's it's not necessarily, we've talked about physical affordances of like what you can do with dice or cards, but there's also the idea that the structure of your game itself kind of gives natural paths mm-hmm. or it, it impedes flow in one way and opens flow in different ways, depending on how the mechanics work and how they interact with the rest of the game. There's uh, two examples that help me understand what affordances were. One of them is the idea that if a doorknob is meant to turn, then an affordance of the knob is that it turns to function as part of its action. But if you turn it the wrong way and it breaks, or if you pull on it and it pops off, right, or whatever, all these things that it can do, it doesn't, it has no affordance, it has no room to maneuver other than what it's designed to do. Right. Like, you should be able to pull on a knob and have it not pop off, even if it's meant to be turned. Like, if I get it wrong and I pull on it and it breaks. Yeah, there's some negative feedback of like, oh, that's not how it works. Right. But then if you destroy it in trying to do it wrong, <laughs> right. that's kind of misreading a, it. Yeah. Right. That's either a poorly designed or poorly manufactured object. Right. Yeah. The, the other one, mm-hmm. my parents bought a lamp, a freestanding floor lamp, and we could not figure out how to turn it on. All right, but they may have inherited it, but whatever, we got it into the 
house and we were like, we, we spent three weeks going, there are no switches. There are no buttons. Mm-hmm. How do we turn it on? And so we used to bring people over after we had identified it and say, if you can turn on this lamp, I'll go get you a Coke or whatever, right? I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll get the next round, whatever it is. Some people figured out figured it out right away. It took us, as I say, several weeks and we essentially figured it out on accident. It has a two or three bulbs at the top. So it has some little bent metal and things that, that attract the attention and make you think, well, somewhere up here, there's got to be a way to turn on one of these bulbs. And, mm-hmm. and this one doesn't actually hold a bulb. This one's decorative or whatever it is. The pole that takes it to the floor is sheer kind of brass colored featureless. And then at the bottom is a round foot. No guidance as to what to, to pull mm-hmm. or, or push or switch or whatever. The answer is that it works like those traps that are designed to keep squirrels off your bird feeder. <laughs> and that if you grab the pole and pull it down, mm, it's the like light I... turns on. Mm-hmm. It has a give that is invisible. Mm-hmm. I can't tell if that's a bad design or an ingenious design. Like I can't tell if it's functioning as intended. Right. <laughs> is the idea that, yeah. it will, that it will be mysterious and elegant and that nobody will know how to turn it on until you show them how to turn it mm. on? Probably not. That's not generally how we build lamps. Right. But the fact is that I actually don't know that. Mm. And so I have to project onto the designer <laughs> a little bit that they are either bad at this or clever, but not still necessarily good at well, it. Well, <laughs> or it's just a or it's just a case of uh, mismatched audience, right? Like mm, if, it, if, if it's originally marketed as this luxury item with this clever mechanism, you know, and then you ended up inheriting it and and that's not who originally bought it, right? Or right. was originally introduced to it through an advertisement or whatever. Yeah, then that thing that is very simple, once you know, is mysterious and, and frustrating. There may be a term for these kind of lamps for all I know. I, I've no never idea. searched, but maybe well, I'm yeah. just going to make a, a random term. So I'm just going to use the last name Selvig as if, as if somebody named Selvig designed this lamp. Sure. I have no evidence that that is true. If it were called a Selvig lamp and I were to tell somebody, we have a new Selvig lamp, and they were to go, oh, great, so I know how to turn it on, right? There's a piece of information missing, maybe. Right. The larger culture in mm-hmm. part. But yeah. And that's like anything, uh, once you get into special tools, right? Like when I worked in theater, there's all kinds of terms, theatrical terms for things. In a game that, that is communicated, that is that is mostly talking, less talking is not always yeah, we have what the, you're after. We have the benefit of being able to use language for its own sake, in mm-hmm. a way, being able to use the all of the, all the affordances, if you will, right. of having a conversation. Because that's the medium of our game. And so that, in a way, brings us back to to this idea of what tools are you designing that naturally lend themselves to certain interactions? Mm -hmm. One of the examples of that to me, I'm getting there through theater again, as, as an example of procedure and how that can limit options. And sometimes that's good. And how that can also, that is naturally automatically restricting. And sometimes mm-hmm. restrictions are good and sometimes they're not. For example, in the shop at the theater where I did my work in community theater back in the day, we had a rule which went like this. If I hand you a hammer and you don't say thank you and I let go of it, it's my fault if it hits you in the foot because I didn't wait for the thank you. Mm-hmm. And if you take it and don't say thank you and I don't essentially check you on it, do you have it? What do we say? Or whatever it is, yeah. you're welcome to get you to say thank you. Then you have not actually taken possession of the hammer yet. When mm-hmm. you say thank you, that means I have the hammer. I have my hand, it's in my hand, I'm comfortable with the grip, I've got it. Plus it adds a little level of politeness, it adds a, a memory to everybody to be clear. Yeah. But having that as a as a procedure is very helpful. Now, take that from craft, which is the, the production of all of this stuff, into sort of the art of play and the play that you are building, of, that you are affording mm-hmm. through design. Well, yeah, imagine just coming out of that example, imagine a system in which when you extend a contribution to someone else part of the rules like you have to respond in one of either you have to respond mm-hmm. so, so i'm like oh well how about your character you know rides this this amazing dragon and then one of the rules is that like you have to make a response to that and whether that's if the rule is you have to make a response to that 
period, open-ended, do whatever. Right. Or the rule is you have to respond in one of these three coded ways. Right. You have to accept, refuse, or... Right. Or uh, challenge. Challenge, right, yeah. Or something or like that. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That mechanic affords two different dynamics of play, kind of splitting out of that that interaction that you've set up. Right, exactly. So imagine if what you extend to me is, hey, so you're you're flying this dragon. And so my reaction might be, I might be able to say anything that communicates one of those three outputs, mm-hmm. one of those three switches or two switches. I might be able to say, the saddle is uncomfortable. I'm confirming that I'm on the dragon. I'm flying the dragon. My, my response isn't, oh, God, I'm late. I hope it doesn't take off without me, <laughs> right, or whatever. Yeah. That depending on the buckets that we've created, the zones, the, the magic circles that we've created that can be played in, that says Nathan extends and then I either say I don't want that hammer or I say yes hammer I take hammer I have hammer thank mm-hmm. you hammer the more freedom there is to respond the more room there is for play but also the more room there is for things like griefing mistake accidents yeah. and so forth or like extended negotiation that right. doesn't add much to the other player's experience and then the trick is that sometimes that negotiation it might add a great deal of fun for two players mm-hmm. and for the other two players at the table it is adding nothing. Right. They're just it's just adding time. Mm-hmm. It's just adding wait time. You know, actually this is where I want to be able to tag railroading a little bit is the mm-hmm. notion that which I should define the term, I suppose, a little bit just to be sure, which is that railroading is both a noun and a verb, but the verb form is the one that I take issue with that I that I think is important to talk about, which is the one where one where one player railroads another player, whether that player is the GM or not, mm-hmm. in which they essentially push them past a decision as if they were able to make a decision and assumes that all decisions will have the same outcome so that the decision is not a decision. These are all forms of railroading. Right. So either the train doesn't stop at the station like it's supposed to and the players don't have the opportunity to get off if they want to, or no matter what train they get on, they all go to the same place. So the mm-hmm. decision is false. The useful distinction for me is is whether the other players have agency in the decision. Right. Right. If you have agency to go elsewhere, but you still go down the track, you haven't been railroaded. Same. You're riding a train. There's a difference between being railroaded right. and and willingly getting boarding a train. Right. Right. Yeah. The the jargon that we use at the forge was uh, participationism. The difference between illusionism, where you you offer the illusion of choice, but then they don't have it. Right. Or participationism, where you say like we all know, like we're all on board with the track. Right. Right. You know that there's only really one destination here. And so I'm not tricking you into thinking that there's multiple ones. Right. I'm leveling with you, the players. Right. I'm leveling with you, the players. And then we're all on board with getting on the train. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the characters may not be privy to it, but that's a whole other question. That's right. a whole other thing. Intentional railroading is one thing and, and GMs have the, the option to do that at the table and they may or may not and players may or may not care. Right. That's a whole thing. Right. But when accidental railroading happens, it is often a matter of the affordances or the options to the GM that the system either doesn't have the give or that the give is not apparent to the GM or not trusted by the GM or whatever it is. Uh, an example actually that I love of how to demonstrate the difference between a system that has a train, is a train, versus an instance of railroading inside of play. I l- used to love this trick. I do it less so now, but in, in RPGs in general, in which I start at the end and then show how we got there. Mm-hmm. It's an old, you see it on TV all the time. You see it on movies and stuff all the time. Yeah. In RPGs, it can be fun because it is an implicit way to honestly state we know how this ends. Mm-hmm. And even hopefully we go past the ending that is stated, which is to say, okay, so we're all going to find out that Edgar was the killer and we're going to catch him. And what we do after that, we will find out. So first though, we find out that Edgar is the killer. We start at the end with all of us storming in on Edgar and him saying, oh my gosh, you found me. How did I give myself up or whatever, right? And then we flash back to the day before. We do a little bit of play in which the players know that Edgar's the killer, but the characters don't. Mm-hmm. And then we meet Edgar and then we decide what to do with Edgar. So we kind of get 
three different states of the player character dynamic where the players know and the characters don't mm-hmm. where the players and the characters are together in that moment with Edgar and then where the players and characters are together with themselves but have an unknown future mm-hmm. have a different relationship to the to the environment and the text and the NPCs where now everything is is for up for them right. to to establish and so that model to me affords this idea of everyone looking for the opportunities mm-hmm. to make that end state come about. Right. Right. As opposed to a model where you're like, we start the mystery, there's been a murder, there's four suspects, Edgar, James, Susan, and Sarah, you know, whatever. Right. right. And then the process of play is about narrowing down the options and discovering that Edgar was the killer. Right. That affords a style of play that I think would probably be a little slower, maybe a little more uh, hesitant because people don't want to, they want to make the right choices. They want to make the correct discoveries, right? Maybe a little more back and forth among the players about like, here's what I think. Here's what I think. Here's what I want to pursue. Here's where I think this is going. Well, the end state already known setup affords a more of a, uh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and make an ironic wry comment here <laughs> right? that all of us as players appreciate because we know we're Edgar's the killer, but our characters don't. I'm going to go off in this red herring direction for the sake of setting up my own discovery of like, oh, that's not who it was right? Um, as a character moment, as opposed to I'm genuinely trying to figure out if this is it. Oh, th- no, that's not it. Right. Bring it back. And it helps people, players, therefore, know when to end scenes, when to have hunches, right. what hunches yeah. are and are not a waste of time, these sorts of things. And that's not to say that one is better than the other because right. investigatory play is still very fun and and, and, and uh, has its own thing going on. But I think that's a great example of how the structure of the game, we just, just keep using the word affordance because it's yeah. kind of the best word for it. You know, right. it affords one style of play while the other structure affords a different style of play. And you can do each with the other, but I think it's more of a stretch. Right. It's, right. Yeah, it's how far do you have to reach to get there? How right. far do you have to travel to get but there? But like, yeah. again, the game like uh, Inspectors is an, an investigatory game that is more in the second mode where you can make quick snap decisions and mm-hmm. do things for the sake of character as opposed to for the sake of plot because what happens is up in the air until you decide what happens. Right. There's no right answer until you've created it at the table. While something like A Trail of Cthulhu is more of the go down the track of here's the clues, here's the clues, here's the clues, discover what happened. All the gumshoe games and and how they interact with, say, a Call of Cthulhu and so Mm -hmm. forth uh, is a great example of, I think, how the the game's affordances and a scenario's affordances sometimes diverge and sometimes align. Right. And that's part of why I left system out of my example is Mm -hmm. because I've used that trick across systems. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. Uh, But the, the game may or may not take a stance on all of this stuff. Right. The game may be like, okay, so for adventure design, we're open so you can try this stuff out session I mean, to session. you could do that with Gumshoe. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. I have, yeah. Uh, so, but it's more like, and then the system of, you know, using your, your skills to find clues and stuff, you know, you may end up using your resources a little more efficiently than you would otherwise because mm-hmm. you kind of already know the direction that things are going. Like that kind of thing where there's like a second order effect because of the system you're using exactly. that may or may not be in line with what that system is setting out to accomplish. Right. There's a gumshoe scenario which I don't which I haven't published, which I intend to at some point, which is that very structure in which the players are using their skills, their abilities to create clues as they go, knowing part of the outcome. So they can say, okay, well, since I am trained in accounting, mm-hmm. I'm gonna demonstrate that there is a connection. I'm gonna draw a connection oh, cool. between the mm-hmm. crime scene and the killer. 
that the GM or the scenario author or whoever may never have thought of, but that we know is sound or we can agree is sound, I can submit and the table can go, oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And if they and if they love it, then we draw it in and it's real. And so it creates multiple paths to the killer because right. rather than having those paths all just stretch out from the players in every direction into the game world, that we know kind of where we're headed. Yeah. And that's a, an example of affordances that while the game is kind of agnostic to, the game doesn't get in the way. Right. Um, and the game kind of sings and can communicate with, can converse and with these scenario affordances. This is where we get into opportunities, right? The the gumshoe system gives you this opportunity because of how it's set up with how clues are found mm-hmm. and how that interacts with lists of skills and how that interacts with the group of investigators and how they have overlaps of skills and stuff. To do something, like you're saying, where you reverse the, the relationship and instead of saying, I need these skills to gain these clues, mm-hmm. you say, what clue do I find if I have this skill? Right. I don't know if that's part of the base game or anything, or if you're, mm-hmm. or if that's an entirely fresh take of yours. But from the level of, of design thinking, once you have a framework, like once you're like, okay, I have, I have my Insomniac fighter pilot system that uses uh, fate dice and has these, these traits, then you start to find things like, well, since I have fate dice, what do these blanks mean? Right. Because in the core system, they're just they're just not. They don't contribute to the final total. But I have dice that give me these faces over and over during the game. That's um, an opportunity. That's an opportunity. We tend to think of railroading as something that happens primarily at the adventure level or right. at the play level as playcraft. And I think by and large, statistically, I mean like if in raw numbers, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. But design can definitely affect the appeal or the ease or uh, the difficulty of railroading or not railroading in the sense that if your book, for example, says a lot of puts the onus for story on the on the on the GM or says the GM writes the story and you know if it uses language that suggests a central story that is meant to go to a specific place. Mm-hmm. Even if the system doesn't do that, if the system is can be very open and offers lots of opportunities, can, that is essentially helping to obfuscate the opportunities, hide some of the opportunities mm-hmm. so that railroading may either become come to seem more apparent or more appealing or more true to the intent of the system or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of railroading happens because options – and accidental railroading, I should say, yeah. happens because options are not seen either by the players or by the GM. So the GM doesn't know to say, you know, you can get off the station at, at any of these stations. Mm-hmm. We have I have a map for every one of these towns. I have a example of, of railroading that may be illustrative, which is kind of around this point of how much of what actually happens – in a quote-unquote railroad is because of the system or scenario and how much Mm. is the GM and player agenda and playcraft brought to it, right? So when I was in, I think we were in middle school maybe, so not a mature group, my friend was really into Deadlands. Mm -hmm. And I was like the GM for everything, but he like saw the book and thought it was awesome and he bought the book. He's like, I'm going to run Deadlands for you guys. And we're like, awesome, we're totally in. I made a huckster, you know, super excited. And he ran, I believe it was the adventure that was in the book. Uh, I don't remember which edition this was. was, was, I'd have to look it up. But the point is, we're doing this adventure. It starts off on a train, which is fine. Right. Just a fun detail. (laughs) You know, we we, we meet each other. We, you know, we we form our little party. We end up at a hotel or a tavern or whatever, however it's phrased. And in short order, we are brought before some kind of... Pinkerton detective right. body. I then tried to do a huckster spell to get out of trouble. I failed my role, and then I was summarily taken outside and shot. Oh my god! Because that's what it said in the adventure. You know, whatever I did the card play, and I failed because your starting stats are actually pretty yeah low and and whatever. He's like, uh, well, sorry, it says right here if any 
characters try to use like magic or hucksterism or whatever and they fail, I think it might have been by a margin because I really blew it, uh-huh. then they are shot by the Pinkertons because they're clearly a danger to the to national security wow. or something like that. Wow. Yeah. And it bummed us out and we stopped playing. But we didn't have the maturity, either he to just be like, oh, that's, that's bogus. Like, I don't want to stop playing. Right. Or us to be like, can we just kind of just be like captured or separated or like something how right. can we keep playing do i have to bribe this guy to get him not to shoot yeah, me yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, whatever yeah. we didn't have the ability and nothing in that book gave him the indication whether because of how it was written or because of how he understood it right because i don't know how close a read he did of it or anything who knows as a matter of at the table fun sometimes things like this come up and do you say Oh, well, guess we're done playing. You know, whether it's a mechanical thing, oh, we can't resolve this tie because there's no rule for resolving ties in this game. Uh, Always make sure there's a rule for resolving ties in your game. (laughs) What do you do? How far afield do you have to go? And like we still could have done through it as a very linear scenario where like you're supposed to find this person, find out this information and then like save this person. And there were some like options of like what you did with them at the end or Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. But even in that linear scenario, we could have kept playing. We could have figured out something else to do in that moment. Right. So it's interesting to watch where the decision making processes go for player and character, which is the characters. Mm -hmm. Presumably you were there were other players. right? Yeah. yeah. So they could have they said, well, you have to make a new character and we'll meet you and we'll we'll befriend you. Sure. Yeah. There were options. Yeah. But the notion was in part that the damage done to the players, I say damage, but you know, yeah. the, the, well, the it took hindrance. the air out of the yeah. out of the fun. Right. It was like, oh, this isn't that sucks. So like, the, I wanted to play this character. So the, the, the affordance <laughs> made to the players was such that the characters had no more decisions to make. Right. Because the players said, we're out. You know your group, sound or unsound reason, whatever, mm-hmm. right? The point is that nothing else happens because if the players aren't still in it, yeah. nothing else can happen. And Yeah. And I'm not saying that like I was some kind of paragon of functional play at that point myself. Like I did plenty of things in World of Darkness games that, that I was running at the time that were sure. like, why aren't you doing the thing I want you to do? Like I set up this confrontation with this werewolf and you're, you just want to murder him. But no, there's all this rich, interesting background that... Oh, you're just going to murder him with silver broadswords, huh? Okay. Right. Fine. It happens. The decision one makes whether or not to have an imaginary Pinkerton shoot an imaginary huckster mm-hmm. is only so much akin to the way a door works, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but there are obviously we can learn from design informs design. Mm-hmm. What I keep seeing is the fact that somebody doesn't see that a game, they come up to the game and they push on it and it doesn't open and they go, oh, well, I guess I can't go in. There. I guess it's locked. Yeah. And the game gives them no indication. Like we know from our whole lives, some doors pull and some doors push mm-hmm. or which side of the door you're on. It depends it, right? Some doors slide, whatever. If a game is completely new to you, I think it has, you have to be cognizant of the fact that it's possible that your game will be somebody's first RPG. Right. Now, there's only so much you can do without writing a whole chapter for, for new players and stuff, but you can make things easier to get inside. If somebody walks up to a game, especially if they think they know the culture, but this game is somehow different from the the gaming mm-hmm. culture and they push on the door and they go, oh, I guess it's locked. We'll either have to come back later or just forget it. I see that in in kind of my communities that I'm a part of with Powered by the Apocalypse stuff where right. some games that are Powered by the Apocalypse games but have done a greater departure from kind of the core actual Apocalypse World framework. Sometimes those get into trouble, usually in, in playtesting where people bring assumptions to them mm-hmm. from earlier Powered by the Apocalypse systems that that game doesn't use. And you have to kind of flag for those players. Like, and I do that at conventions with Worldwide Wrestling where I ask who's experienced with like Powered by the Apocalypse because this game doesn't work exactly the same. There's some changes. So if you have that experience, I'm actually going to spell out things a little differently 
so that I highlight how it's different for you. Mm-hmm. While that difference means nothing to this person who hasn't played any indie games or whatever before right. and you know just wants to check out this wrestling game. Those details are not important to that person, but they are to these people. So you know, I have to right. take that temperature and that kind of helps me do the, the most effective mechanics explanation. Right, yeah. There's a great post just, uh, I can't remember if the post was this week, but I saw it this week. Mike Merles, who is of course one of the uh, lead designers on D&D 5th edition, pointed to a great blog post at a site I'm not going to remember, but if you look at Mike Merles' Twitter feed, I believe it's at Mike Merles, um, you will see this link. It's an example of somebody who's done a lot of convention play of D&D 5 and compared what people do to what it says in the D&D 5 mm, rulebook. Cool. And he's not not judgmentally, but in a sense of, did you know that initiative doesn't work the way we think it does? That, uh-huh. we, that we assume it works like D&D initiative has worked for two editions and it sort of does but there are there are subtle things that that if you look for how ready to actions work or what you do in a tie or whatever those are not in five mm-hmm. five answers those differently and i'm mm-hmm. like oh that's fat and, and it's one of those things where i know i've read that part of five mm-hmm. but i also know that i played D five a couple of weeks ago and i know i did it just the way i do it yeah because right? you just have a way and and it still works it still works the game has enough give mm-hmm. or affords me to do that with initiative without flying apart mm-hmm. but if, if i was a newcomer to dnd5 i might then end up not necessarily in conflict, but in friction with somebody who does it differently at the same table. Or we might just have to go to the book and check. Or we might discover that the two ways that we play, we might learn that the game has more give, is more affording than we think it is. And because if, for example, imagine if you don't know that your scenario will play just fine if the Pinkertons spare your huckster. Sure. Right? You have to, at the time, you're like, well, I'm going to trust the text. Mm-hmm. And we go, well, okay. And, and and that seems like a sound decision. Let's do that because it's their game. They know what they're doing. Right. So now we have reason to, to doubt everything else in the game is going to be fun because this decision wasn't fun. Right. That's not a unreasonable decision to make mm. to reach that conclusion. But yeah. if you don't feel like you have that authority, even if you imported it from another game to say, hang on a second, I'm going to read ahead a couple of pages again to make sure that, because I'm just going to blow that off if it's fine with you guys and have the Pinkerton just scold you. And so it's the same thing with things like mechanics like initiative, or me- I mean, not just initiative, but I mean mechanics in which somebody mm. says, sometimes initiative is going to work this way and sometimes I'm going to do it where, where, where you guys always go first and you guys decide what order you go in. I've been playing a lot more kind of OSR stuff over yeah. the last couple months and I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but we have kind of a table joke about how does this work in this game? Oh, whatever. We'll just use this. Like, right. it's like, so is dual wielding a thing in this game? Uh, well, we'll just do it like it, like how it works in Lamentations. Mm-hmm. Like, of the flame player. Yeah. Princess, yeah. Oh, one was like, do rangers get spells in this game? Right. They could or they could not. It just depends on which tradition of classic D and and other OSR kind of sphere games the the game is coming from and right. what the designers have decided to do. And there is an answer to the question. Sure. But part of the joke is like, uh, well, uh, sure, like take a cleric spell. You know, like uh, why not? Like it's not going to break the game right. if we just import an assumption from one of these satellite systems that they're all similar enough that you can kind of mix and match even on the fly. Uh, right, it's not going to earn you a citation if you make the wrong decision this time and then change your mind later. Right, and it's not next gonna, session by ch- it, yeah, yeah. Like worst case, it's like oh, I guess I should have gotten a spell that I never got. Right, like yeah. okay, just take it now. Right, um, the games themselves are are very flexible. So there's there's two things out of that that I think are interesting. One is that they're flexible enough in and of themselves to, and this is one of the design principles to just go with on the fly decisions. Right, right, but they also have this affordance in their design to mix and match between all of your favorite things, basically. And I think you see that in lots of the self-labeled OSR games that come out, Mm -hmm. is people taking their favorite bits from games that came before and combining them so that they have all of their favorite things in one place. 
Right. 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 And it's not a huge departure in terms of the play style or how things are explained or even the or the mechanical relationship between like attributes mm-hmm. and skills and damage or anything like that. But it's more like in my version of this kind of game, I want clerks to have spells. I want bards to be assassins and I want, you know, like right. whatever. And then you they kind of pull it all together <laughs> and whether they cobble it together or whether they do a beautiful, you know, synergy of all these disparate elements or whatever, they naturally create this constellation of similarly themed, similarly aligned games. Right. That's very cool once you get into it. And I think that's part of the attraction of that community is like that you can get in through whatever game brought you in and then discover all these other little pieces and there there's almost no friction to just right. grabbing the things that you like the most. I think when we when we realize and embrace the fact that rules reside and the game therefore resides in a, in a minimum of two places the work itself mm-hmm. and the players when the players are part of a larger ecosystem they contain options and things that they can use to drift the rules hack the rules remix the rules adjust the rules on the fly ways to solve problems that may not reside in the work but reside mm-hmm. in the players so for example if i come to a uh, pinkerton with a gun and i personally have only the option that is given to me or i trust it for this instance only the option that is given to me in the that resides in the text mm-hmm. I may not use options that reside in me as a player because I may think it's out of bounds. Right. You log enough hours of play in particularly an ecosystem, which is to say a network of players and works larger than any one game. Mm-hmm. And the players have fixes and solutions and options, even if the game doesn't necessarily say it is an option to use one of these three initiative systems. But the game either says explicitly or implicitly because I am part of this. I put the OSR logo on my game, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've used the OSR term or I've cited these other games or it's clear that, that my AC and hit point scales are something you're familiar with from other games, mm-hmm. whatever. You're part of that larger ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I don't have to say outright in the game, I don't have to be every game, right? I'm being right. this game, but that the players know as part of the larger ecosystem, okay, well, it'll work for today if I just swap this part out or if we just give you a cleric spell or whatever it is. And so being aware in some cases of the affordances that you didn't build in, the opportunities that you didn't intentionally close off or that you intentionally didn't draw attention to but also left open, that these kind of relationships between your game and the other games around it and therefore the players themselves and the rules that reside in them creates a situation where your game has affordances that you may not be aware of or affordances that your players, uh, the end users, may not be aware of. And by, by aware, I, I should say what I mean is explicitly. You may be, you may know that you're making an OSR game, so people may change the hit point system and swap it out for something from Lamentations or whatever. Great. No problem. And you don't care, but you don't want to highlight it. Mm-hmm. But you might also say, at the same time that you're making your game, in the same Gen Con, another OSR game comes out, and they are actually wonderfully compatible, but neither one of you knew that. That's an affordance that you were sort of not aware of, yeah. couldn't be aware of, mm-hmm. and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Right? That you go, oh, great. Yeah, they're both lovingly compatible. That's great. I, w- I want more games where people play it and say, you know what I love about this game is how when you play it, this happens. Yeah. And I'm kind of decided in the last year, two years, really, of designing various games that I'm willing to sacrifice my ability to get a cookie for that moment for saying in the book, this rule is designed to do this. The reason it's here is for, to make X happen. So while it doesn't feel emergent, you will be able to deploy it well because you're, you're, in an RPG, your players, GM included and, and everybody, are your collaborators in the final experience. Withholding certain kinds of information is sometimes an opportunity and sometimes just is silently communicating an affordance. But there's a value, not all, not for every damn opportunity, I don't think, but for the important opportunities to saying, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity where you have to say something that, de- that makes it clear to the other players that you refuse the hammer. Look, you can say it in character, you can say it out of character. You can describe it, you can use it in dialogue, whatever it is, but you have to in that moment, when somebody offers you the, the hilt of the sword, you can't put it off. You take it 
or you refuse it. That's the next step. By calling out specifically why that rule works the way that it does, what the shape of the container is. Sure, sure. Like it can be a paragraph. You could write mm-hmm. it. You could write it down. It could be a page. You can make a web video. We don't care. <laughs> but whatever the shape of that is, by defining it clearly, helps right. I think establish what the answers can look mm-hmm. like. The the idea of like, oh, I love I love that moment in that game where you have to make the choice about taking the sword or not. <laughs> right. Having that be one of the things that people share about the game is worth the loss of like, guess what happened in my game? We had this big thing about whether he took the sword or not. Right. Whoa, that happened in my game too. Will is so smart that he made this <laughs> game that we all had this this same experience of. And right. we're like, that's what it says on the back of the book. The game is about this. Right. It's going to happen. Right. And part of it, I also think, is that remembering that those emergent things will happen anyway. Yeah. And some of them you'll get credit for, kind of whether you, you designed yeah. specifically for them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're not really giving up that much to be clear and yeah. help players find and... It's- make the most of their opportunities yeah it's just about picking your shots like what's the most important stuff yeah and telegraphing what what you want people to definitely know about the game because if you don't do that there's a lot of people who won't see it and won't use it because they already think they know how it works or just the the shape of the game that their individual play experience just leads them away from that choice or whatever it is so if it's core to the game better to telegraph it than not i think otherwise the alternative is your huckster gets shot (laughs) There's two things here. One is when you're designing the game, you will find or reveal or discover the affordances created by the choices you're making, and then you can choose whether to capitalize on them or not. Right. Right. But the other issue here is that no matter what, your final game, your final piece that you put out into the world is going to afford certain things certain give and give certain opportunities to the players and, and the GM if there is one. So as a designer, how do you approach whether it's flagging or whether it's highlighting or de-emphasizing those affordances for the players so that at the table, as a matter of playcraft, they they move into things that are in alignment with your vision for the game. Right. um, Or they make a choice to say, no, we're going to do this other thing. How flexible is the game? How do you think about that brittleness or that bounded quality? Right. The pliability. Yeah, pliability. That's a good word. I I fight with it a lot, actually, game by game. This is an area where I think the game and its marketing and its branding and all this stuff interacts in a way that often game design doesn't. And I I dare say in many cases, I don't want to say shouldn't, but often can't can't and often benefits from not worrying about it too early. Um, But for Mm -hmm. example, if you're designing a World of Darkness game, there are certain assumptions that you can make if you're working in the larger ecosystem officially that you can say, okay, so I can cite this other book and if they want werewolves, they can go buy the damn werewolf book. Right. Right. But then look at the early White Wolf games of the 90s where werewolves functioned differently in the vampire books and the werewolf books, which I thought was fascinating. My favorite part of that was how monsters were presented in the Hunter book. And and that actually was very explicitly like, while you can use the other game lines to create your antagonists, right. that actually might not be your best idea. Like, it, it'll be more mysterious and horrible if the characters run into monsters that, as players, they don't already have a sense of like, here's how werewolves work. Right. And then it had templates for how to build those. And they were usually more on paper, like powerful, right? Like they were, they, they had better stats and stuff than a comparable. Right game line made monster would be which i thought was was a nice little aspect of that game absolutely and i think it's also it's a demonstration of three approaches working in tandem fairly successfully i think which is and and not always at the same time so you have the the game specific approach hunter as its own thing right um which is that these monsters work in this way 
you have hunter's relationship acknowledged to a larger ecosystem, which is to say that, look, you can create werewolves using werewolf and fight them in hunter and the rules will interact. Right. It may not be exactly what you want, so forth. And that leads to the third point, which is calling it all out. Yeah. Which is so that in the first one is, look, we have werewolves that are hunter werewolves. They're for hunter and they will serve this game first. Right. We have the larger thing, which is you could create more sympathetic werewolves or werewolves who feel more nuanced or human or less that you might, the characters might end up wanting to or, not kill or something. Or a or player can play a, a, player werewolf can play a werewolf built in the werewolf game, but then all of you can be you know on the hunt against a hunter-built werewolf that's right. going to act a little differently because right. their powers are different, basically. Yeah. And then the third aspect of the third approach is, and this is something that, that World of Darkness games have been good at in different, at different degrees, I should say, over the years, which is expressing why a rule works the way that it does. Mm-hmm. And this is in part about designing for emergence. And sometimes it's about accidental emergence and intentional emergence where you, where you leave a rule unexplained so that when it happens, it reveals itself and explains itself or explaining a rule so that the GMs and the players and everybody <laughs> together know how to deploy it. Yeah, it can make an informed choice. Right. And I think in this case, and this is uh, Hunter the Reckoning, by the way, the, right. the, the first one, not, not the vigil. Yeah, I think in that case, it made the right choice of saying, if you do use these templates, they will be harder, right? right? Like they are more on paper powerful right. than a comparable PC built in Werewolf the Apocalypse. I imagine, <laughs> that's good to know because otherwise like, oh, I just slaughtered my hunter party because I right. thought that this, you know, Gnosis. I played a lot of Werewolf yeah, I thought I knew what I was doing. Yeah, I thought I needed like a Gnosis 3, but it turns out Gnosis 3 in the Werewolf template in Hunter is more like a Gnosis 5 from <laughs> right. Werewolf the Apocalypse. And so that interaction is one of the things that Hunter benefits by being so late in its ecosystem. Yeah. The original Vampire the Masquerade has stats for werewolves when there is no werewolf book yet. Right. And then the werewolf book does it or does it not owe it to vampire to make the same kind of werewolves mm-hmm. and the question is that was a that's a that's a different design environment for werewolf but they still get to make a decision which is do we or do we not adhere to that and the right. decision was we don't because vampires depiction of werewolves is from the vampire perspective right and they're wrong about some stuff yeah and that's a fictional answer for a real design problem which is no because playing them and fighting them are two different things in this world we've mm-hmm. decided that and that's great a recent example is one of the big changes that i've made in the last revision of dark mm-hmm. is that the, one of the big things that i was struggling with was where dark plugs into existing players because there are a lot of assumptions that if brought to dark will break dark things that you do in other rpgs like like so do i get to act on the turn when i'm killed that kind of stuff what is how does initiative work these sorts of things that if you bring in assumptions dark does not behave well but mm-hmm. if you read dark and play dark it, it, they behave fine I, I i really admire the way that games like dungeon world and night witches have their intro pages that say the bully public games are great at this if mm-hmm. you've never played a game like this before start here mm-hmm. if you have but only this one other one start here this sort of thing and i'm agonized over how many different ways to slice that up for dark yeah and when i realized and accepted that dark is essentially the start of its own micro biome in the ecosystem, yeah. right? That's part of the beauty of the OSR is that it's a huge, rich ecosystem, but that is also very diverse and mm-hmm. players are, are comfortable both being in it and also ignoring parts of it as they as suits their given campaign, not even necessarily their play style. Right. But was that realizing that I was starting from scratch, I just divided it in two. If you've ever played a story game before or an RPG or whatever it is, some a game like this, which is I try to leave it n- intentionally vague, read this book, read generously and trust it and give it a shot before you hack it so that you know what you're doing. The other one was if you've never played one of these games, read this book, read generously. And I mean, they're almost the same thing because it's intentionally designed to orient the players to say, we're all new to this. And that, I think, is not actually the approach that I would take in most games. I worry a lot about my games being accessible to, to brand new role players. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a tricky spot because you, being verbose about how role playing works generally does not help people get into it. Right. But for a game like Dark, whose rule system is 
very different. I also use terms, I intentionally use terms in it that are, some of them are from video games. I call them NPCs, even though I don't refer to the house as a, as, as a GM. Sure, sure. NPC is a misnomer in a way, mm-hmm. but I use NPCs because people know that term. Yeah. At the same time, I use the house because I'm trying to get away from GM a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that Dark doesn't have supplements, it has expansions. Mm-hmm. So that it feels a little board gamey, card gamey. Right. All these things are designed to kind of put everybody equally on their heels. So that everybody's like, okay, I sort of, I'm like, I get it, but I also sort of am new to it. Kind of equally accessible and equally strange so that everybody comes to it with the same dynamic. Right. You and want, that's not always the right choice. I don't know that it's the right choice here, but right. it's what I'm going with. You want people to be sufficiently incentivized oh, yeah, yeah. to actually read right. the, the text. Because that happens too, where you're like, oh, I kind of, and I do that all the oh, time. I, I absolutely Where I'm do. like, oh, I kind of know how this game works and I skim it. Yeah, and then, I check the text. I don't actually read the text. Right, <laughs> and then I usually, I mean, I'd say 99% of the time when I go back and actually read it, there are things in there that are not how I thought they were because I just made assumptions. That's something about a self-awareness of how flexible the game is to that. Like mm-hmm. some games you can kind of skim and then play and they basically work and then you find one or two details are like, oh, we should have done this, but that's... Right. Or you encounter the stuff that, to dig deeper in, in the moment yeah. and then you actually dig deeper in the moment because the game affords that. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider supporting either myself or Will at either of our respective Patreons. I am at patreon.com slash wordwill, and Nathan is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. Find our complete back catalog of previous episodes, show notes, and ephemera at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...